Welcome back, Dreadfuls. You're listening to another episode of Left for Dread, the horror podcast for everyone from newbies to fanatics. I'm one of your hosts, Ray. And I'm your other co-host, Chris. And today we are talking about a movie that I'll be really shocked if Chris hated, a disturbing as fuck movie from 1999 called Audition. Yeah, so this is not the first time we mentioned this. I guess this is one of our resolutions for 2019 that we're actually getting around to um i i think it was one of the i forget what episode but it was it was like one of the last ones of 2018 where we were reviewing a list of foreign horror films and audition happened to be on one of them and this is my first time seeing audition i know it's like a huge landmark film especially for the torture porn genre i mean let me rephrase that it has some big influences on some big horror actors like like eli roth and the soska sisters and i think this film is it was critically acclaimed and it's very important to the to the genre um and i get i guess you can look at it in both good ways and bad ways like especially if i mean if you're just like a like a newbie to horror maybe you're just you're just a regular horror fan and the torture porn genre is not your thing you can kind of blame it on, on addition on the other side i mean this movie this movie's like it's creepy and haunting and disturbing and um and i don't think i think it laid the foundations it, it's just people or, or directors or filmmakers afterwards took it one step further with the gore. I'm not saying this, that that's a bad thing. Um, this is a long way of saying I really enjoyed this film. Yeah, it was a, a Takeshi Miike uh, movie. Um, I'm a fan of his work. My all-time favorite film of his is Ichi the Killer. I knew you were going to say that. Yeah, Ichi the Killer is one of his most famous works. And he's just an auteur filmmaker. I, I, I really, I'm a big fan of his. So... This was not my first time seeing Audition. I have seen it before. However, I thought I was only going to have to see that movie once because for me, once was enough. (laughs) Because this movie for me is like profoundly disturbing. I mean, torture, like the torture, quote unquote, porn aspect aside, it is a profoundly disturbing movie. And it is simultaneously sexist and misogynistic and feminist all at the same time. Yeah, reading the critics and the reviews was really interesting because it's so polarizing. And but like it definitely plays in both spaces. So I guess... I mean, obviously, like, the work it's based on, like, Murakami and Takeshi Miike, like, they're both really avant-garde artists, both in their own right. So I don't think that those type of clashing uh, dialectic critiques are... They're, they're, it wasn't a mistake. Like, it's definitely... I think it was definitely on purpose uh, at how polarizing on both ends it was there is no doubt about it i don't even know where to start with this movie uh maybe start with the 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 basic plot premise in case and no one has heard of or seen audition yet and if you haven't you should we'll just no no spoilers we'll talk about this the elevator pitch then pause it then watch it then come back and press play okay 
So the elevator pitch, according to IMDb, because it's two sentences, a widower takes an offer to screen girls at a special audition arranged for him by a friend to find him a new wife. The one he fancies is not who she appears to be after all. Yes. And then it becomes a dark descent into madness. And it's so... I love I love it uh, because it, it plays with the unreliable narrator trope like so hardcore. So you don't... Oh, God, yeah. So like, like at the end, you're like, what the hell's going on? And then you're like, oh, it was just a dream. Do es, des ex machina. Oh, shit. No, it's not a dream. It's actually real. And it, it just really really screws with your head um it, it becomes super surreal and dreamlike and nightmarish and at the end like you you're just left with a ton of questions are we le- are we left with that many questions i feel like i feel like our questions got answered okay well okay maybe well this is my first time watching it i'll be honest the first time i watched it i was like slightly confused by one of the end bits so i had to rewind it and watch it again which shockingly enough part of the scene in the apartment that we'll get to at the end of the movie i found more disturbing than the last 30 minutes of this movie oh um yeah, okay. I think I know what you're talking about. Okay. Anyway, anywho. Yeah. That to me was more disturbing than the very end bit. So clearly <laughs> I have issues. <laughs> so before we go into it from start to finish, I made a point of saying that this movie is simultaneously feminist and misogynistic, which we can talk about, but I found this really great quote from one of from a critic from the los angeles times who was talking about the movie after he saw it and he noted that the film quote is ultimately about the male fear of women and female sexuality noting that the women are blatantly objectified at the first half of the film and in the second half asami goes on to redress her this imbalance when she becomes a quote-unquote avenging angel. Yeah, it's it's a creepy psychological thriller revenge flick. In yeah. A way. Yeah. Which, again, and they're not wrong. I, I think I even wrote that down. The way they are describing women at the beginning of this movie sounds like they're describing your ideal pet than a partner, than a wife. It sounds like they're describing a dog rather than a person or like a brand new car. I think he even, when he starts looking through the resumes, he mentions like, it's like my first time buying a car. Like women are, he's objectifying them. Yeah. Which at that point I was rooting for, because I already knew what was going to happen. I was rooting for Asami. I was like, I can't wait. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, it already begins as misogynist. It becomes like, very patriarchal like it was so it, it gets worse like it gets like the whole so yeah the the, the main character his name is um uh, Aya, uh ayama shikiharu ayama and ayama he's a widower he's been widowed for at least i want to say like a decade yeah yeah his son his son was like four or five years old um in the beginning of the film yeah and then he's what 26 23 the kid uh well oh, if no, asami yeah. is 24 yes. and he said that she's close to his age mm-hmm. he has to be at 
the very most 23 years old. Yeah, so, like, there's the weird age disparity between the two. But I, what I found, like, more or most disturbing of all was the reason Oyama liked or was super attracted to Sami. He was attracted to, I guess, this this emotional trauma that she's gone through all her life. And he felt like kindred spirit with her. And then he takes on... He basically, like, mansplains to her, like, oh, hey, yes, life is hard, but it gets better, and I can help you through that. And it gets, it gets like, really, it's, like, this weird patriarchal pseudo-romantic relationship, or a, 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 not even, um, it's not love, it's, like, just infatuation. It's just, it just felt really wrong and dirty. I know how I felt as a woman watching this movie. How did you feel as a guy watching this? As like a man, how uh, did you feel watching this movie? It it felt real. I felt like really uncomfortable. Like it's, I felt really skeeved out. It's like this is like I was uh, no. This is this is. Uh, it was really. It was very uncomfortable watching it. Okay, I I, I think Ayama. He's right to feel lonely. Uh, I mean, he's a widow, and like his he was he obviously was very much in love. Uh, with his past wife, and I likened this a lot to a podcast that we really we were, were really big fans of, Life After, the follow up to the message, um, by uh, what's it called, GE Podcast Theater. So Life After uh, also focuses on a widower, and one of the major themes about that, uh, or underlying that story, is how. When you're widowed, people on a on, on like on some level they don't understand the loss you feel, and you're isolated. And like even if you try to move on, or some people some people do do move on. That's great, uh, but some people can't. And like there's this deep rooted psychological anchor that's dragging them down. And uh, I thought those themes are really poignant here, but just Ayama's. Ayama's way of like dealing with it and working through it was just completely the wrong way of going out about it. It's like the wrong motivation, the wrong type of catharsis. And yes, he had he had okay, so he had enablers, but I think they were coming from a good place. Like his son wanted him to be happy, and like the son was like the only genuinely like pure-hearted person in this movie. I love the son, and he just wanted his dad to be happy, and like it was he his son innocently just mentions his dad like yeah you should get remarried like you look dispirited you should you know go out and you know date and be happy uh and his uh, his co-worker or his uh his colleague yes he like set up the audition and yes it was very unethical but i think he got some points in the other direction saying like, like he was being the type of friend who was willing to call out ayama for his bullshit uh especially when Ayama was a head over heels in love and or objectifying Asami. Yeah, he says, there's something about her I don't like. Uh, she made me nervous. She made me want to smoke a cigarette. Now, I get that feeling. Have you ever met, because uh, I know that this has happened to me. I've met people and been very fine, whatever. And pe- y'all call this two-faced. I don't give a fuck. I have met a person and said, mm, there's something about this one I don't like. Can't put my finger on it. 
but I don't like you for some reason. And then they do something and I'm like, found it. That's why I didn't like you. I mean, it's like, it's like taking a test. Like usually your first instinct, your gut instinct is like the correct one. Yeah. And I, if, I mean, has it happened all the time? No, but there are certain instances where I have absolutely felt that way. And this was one of those cases where he should have listened to his friend. It was sort of like in high school, when you get you into your first relationship and you're all like crazy and excited and we're all in high school and hormones suck and all that crap and your friends like don't call your crush or don't drunk text her ex or don't do this or don't do that it's basically like don't do the thing so what does your friend do does, does the, the thing. thing exactly that is oyama's <laughs> <laughs> motivation for all of this it's like he married his wife at such a young age that he was such like became emotionally stunted because of it mm-hmm. but also he clearly has a problem he does he Slept with his secretary. Yeah. Oh, God. That was another... Oh, I completely forgot about the secretary subplot. Oh, my God. I mean, so 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 here's the thing. There's two interpretations to the end fever dream that he has. There's the version that the director says. And then there's the version that outsiders watching the film have interpreted it as. This, like, encompasses the final scene as well. And a bunch of women show up, one of them being the secretary. Now... You can tell in parts of this movie the way she behaves around them that something happened. Because when she says, oh, I'm getting married, or the way she acts around him, oh, who are you marrying? Nobody you know. Okay. It's all very, it's all very weird. How she lingers at every time, like, she leaves the office building. Right. It's, it's just, it's very, it's very weird. Like, he, like, it obviously meant something to her and there was an expectation that she had and it didn't mean anything to him because it looks like he did he got what he wanted and sort of left it alone now maybe he waited so long to try and find another wife out of out of guilt for his past wife i think grief affects everybody differently but there's nothing wrong with not wanting to get remarried there's nothing wrong with wanting to get remarried just don't don't use women as toys i feel like is something that is sort of almost the point of this movie like don't use women as toys and like uh ayama was basically using women uh, asami uh in particular as like a crutch like he was just basically not he was basically not dealing with his grief he was just he was just not not he never moved on properly and then he just he just created like this i want to say like an anathema to his suffering by trying to find someone who suffered as much as him and creating like a weird relationship dynamic out of that it just it felt very odd and strange and disgusting i think because of his desire to humiliate and dominate women he was attracted to her darkness and her experience with grief and loss and that was his attraction to her oh she's lost something to the extent that i have something to her felt like it died for reasons we find out later and he lost the love of his life so he equated grief with grief even though Grief is different for everyone. The only difference is where Asami was 
previously hurt and abused and abandoned by other men in his life, he actually tried to track her down because he was like, I don't understand. I just want to talk to her and made the attempt to get to her face to face. Unfortunately, she was already there and pissed for different reason entirely. I mean, not unjustly, though, he did lie to her about why he held the audition in the first place, which is just a fucking scummy-ass thing to do. Uh, yeah, that, that, that entire audition scene was just... I felt so dirty watching it. It set up, it, it set up exactly what it meant to establish in the tone, and it was just very skeevy and scummy, and it's just like, uh... And then it's, I thought there was some parts where like they're pretty tasteless and i i i know like it's it's all to build up this slow burn uh of like misogyny just to like just be thrashed down with asabi just going full-on like psycho and and just taking her revenge out on like ayama and like and creating the, the movie is like really it's like a mirror image of each other in the first and second half and like the second half is just like it's just taking down every amount of that, like that uh, justification, just slashing into pieces. But like that scene, like I maybe you know, and I could you could say that's a compliment to to Keshi Miike's vision. But like, oh geez, that's like I think the what that the actual audition like just made me felt really dirty. Especially there were some scenes like you know content warning, trigger warning. Like there were some scenes where. Um, they talked about suicide attempts. Yeah, yeah. Like one, one of them like started like undressing or like lifted up her sleeve, and they showed scars. Like, oh, did you, did you really have to do that? Like, I think that it, I think it went over the line with that one. They asked questions like, oh, and th- this is um, so as if holding an audition, a fake audition for a fake movie, wasn't coming enough. They asked them questions like, the film's gonna have nudity. Are you okay with that? Which, fine, I feel like potentially a fair question if you're a legitimate casting director, but asking if you've ever worked in the porn industry or the prostitution industry is completely inappropriate. Like, I'm sorry. Also, look at the room they were in. There's a single chair in the middle of the room. There's three dudes in the room and one girl. It's just the whole the whole setup was supremely like I was super uncomfortable watching it. That's the yeah. point. I know, I know, I know. I mean, but that's that's the point. Yeah, <laughs> I know. It's like, oh, uh, it's like I Mike-san, I get what you're doing, but this is terrible. <laughs> so Ayama is home, and he's sorting through all of these res not resumes, headshots, uh, applicants. Yeah, uh, essay, uh, essays. Yeah, they had them write an essay, which I was like, interesting. So he sorts through all of that, and he finds her. He finds Asami's photo. And then that was sort of it for him. So from all of that, he had to pick 30 people. Well, also the, the, his colleague was like, don't judge it just by their photo, like read their essays. And it's like, it's all his fault. (laughs) Right. And she wrote a compelling essay about her dealing with grief. And it's, it's almost like she knew. So in comparison to everybody else that shows up for the audition, she is dressed head to toe in white throughout the whole movie. It's like this symbol of purity 
that she puts up for herself because she feels like it was stolen from her to begin with. So now she has to present herself a certain way. Obviously, by the end of the movie, we've learned that she sort of equated pain with love. Or just because, like, she, all the men in their life, like, abused her and, you know, they, they, they did it. They did it out of, out of quote-unquote love. This whole movie, like, trigger warning for people who have dealt with abuse of any kind. Because it's, it's not easy to watch the end of the movie with all of that realization coming into play. It does get a little difficult to watch and to swallow. So, out of all 29 girls, Oyama doesn't talk to any of them. His friend does all the talking. When you get to Asami... I mean, he already made his decision after he... Right, um, he knew. He the, knew. Yeah, he knew. Yeah. So, he addresses her, and even his friend was like, dude, that was super unprofessional. Even, like, real, like, directors don't do that. Well, it's a good thing you're not real directors then, isn't it? His friends, that's where he starts the whole conversation of there's something off about her, there's something about her I don't like, so just be careful. And he, he's just like, what's, I don't see anything wrong with her. You're nuts. And he says, just do me a favor, just wait before you call her. He waits like two days, and it transitions to one of the first creepy shots where like, it's definitely like Ringu Sadako-esque, where we just see this uh abandoned japanese um style building where it's but it's like all the all the paper sliding doors are all ripped out and decrepit and there's like this a single telephone and like this this mysterious large burlap sack that moves around and then asami is just slouched forward and her hair is like all covering her face and she's just like staring at the phone you can't even see her face but it's setting up like a mood. It's like, oh shit. She is sitting there staring at the phone. For like two days straight. <laughs> and then when the phone rings, you see this creepy smile come across her face. And that for me is like where there was something unnerving about her before. That's where the horror begins. Because you're like, wait a minute, this chick's got a couple screws loose. Rightfully so. But she's got a couple screws loose. And they develop a courtship, if you will. And he wants to take her away for the weekend because he wants to propose. Because even his son was like, oh my God, you're in love. Have you proposed yet? And he's like, no, not yet. We're going to go away for the weekend. But you'll meet her eventually. It's like before or after you guys get married. I gotta say, the kid's, like, pretty, like, chillax and cavalier about everything. It's like, okay, and, like... Because I feel like he's been sitting in front of his dad going like this for <laughs> his entire existence. Like, let's go, clock's ticking. So, a proposal never happens because there's this really awkward scene where he's like, okay, what should we do before dinner? There's a museum. Let's go. It's a 20-minute cab ride, but we can get there before it closes and have some time if we go now. So he's obviously like nervous about being alone with her because he's trying to think of things to do before dinner. And also they're 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 in a hotel together, like Yeah. So she takes her clothes off and gets under the covers and says, Come here, but don't take your clothes off yet. And then she's like, uh, I want you to see all of me or know everything about me. And then she starts sliding up the covers from the feet up and then she sees scars on her inner thigh and i forget 
what she says afterwards. She's told she's told a few stories before this, so it's kind of hard to keep track of which one's which. I think this was the one about was it the one about her mom? I can't remember. I honestly can't remember. And then she says, I want you to love only me. No one else, only me. And he responds by taking off his sweater, unbuttoning his shirt, and just getting on top of her and giving her a really awkward peck on the lips, and then all of a sudden he's out cold and wakes up to a ringing phone because she disappeared. Oh, that shot was so wonderfully but weirdly done. Like, so he, like, the, the covers wrap over and then it pans to the back of the sheets, but then it becomes the top of the sheets. And then, uh, then we see Ayama, like, alone in the bed. And he's, he has, like, uh, like he has, like, the worst hangover ever. He, like, stumbles out of bed. Um, the phone is ringing. And then he picks it up. The front desk is like, yeah, uh, yeah your, your partner left, like, three hours ago? Are you... Are you gonna check out? Are you gonna stay there? And he's like, "What the fuck are you talking about?" <laughs> she left. And it sets off this, uh, this like neo neo noir uh, mystery for like an act where all of a sudden Asami like just mysteriously disappears. He's trying to retrace his steps, and then he just encounters like weird ass shit along the way. He sort of goes like super. I don't like the terminology "crazy ex girlfriend," but he does go crazy ex girlfriend on Asami. Like I have to find her and start to recall details about their com- about her in the conversations he's had with her and tries to track her down through the things that she's mentioned in her life. Yeah, he goes full stalker. Whether it's because he's driven by love, lust, or just a desire to be like, dude, what the fuck, to get closure is sort of unclear till the end. But it's not cute to watch his descent either. He goes to her old belly studio and there is a really creepy homeless old man sitting in a wheelchair in front of the piano. With like, with his feet are, I don't know how to describe his feet. They're like deformed, but they're also stapled to like blocks of wood. I, I don't know. I don't think I don't think they're deformed. Oh, his actual feet or something? Like, or No, I don't think he's got any feet. Oh. Yeah, I think those were some weird, based on what we were witnessing by the end of the movie, I don't think the dude's got any feet. I think they were some sort of weird prosthetic. Uh-huh. Because until he gets up, you just think that what he's doing is he's just sitting in the wheelchair. You know how wheelchairs have places for people's feet to sit down on and touch? Yeah, those don't exist. Those are attached to his fake feet. It's very odd. Like, you, you just have to watch it. And, and I know we're, I know this is, a, this is a podcast, an audio medium, but his, his feet are, like, weirdly over large and deformed and, like, a little bit like gangrenish. It basically looks like Ed Gein made him a pair of socks. Yeah. That look like feet <laughs> stripped from someone else's feet attached to wooden blocks. That's like actually what it looks like. And obviously you can tell that there's something wrong with this man because he's like, did you see her? Did you listen to her? Did you smell her? And you get these flashbacks of her dancing when she's a young girl because you start connecting the dots. And then, and then you see much later, or, or in their spirits throughout the movie, the, that same old man basically branding her as when she was like nine years old. It's like this, this scumbag. And it goes from that to he tries to track her down through the old bar that she used to work at, supposedly. And it's been closed for two years because... 
some got dismembered. Because the owner, who was a woman, got dismembered because she had some sort of affair with a guy at a music record label company or something like that. And the guy was saying how the bo- when they tried to put the body back together, they found extra body parts and they couldn't explain why. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was like two... Two missing fingers and then a tongue. Two fingers and an ear and a tongue. At which point you see, true to Japanese film form, you saw a quick hallucinogenic flash of the severed body parts just like moving in blood. So you go through all that and after all this, Ayama is sort of very disheartened and looks like he's going to give up. And I, you sort of almost breathe, breathe a sigh of relief like, oh, thank God you stopped. And in between all of this, there's a quick jaggedly cut scene of someone who goes into his house sees the picture of his wife sees his thing sees his whatever and you're like oh sugar shit oh my god i i I hated this part because they killed the dog so when ayama goes home and he pours out his drink he hears something and i think he thinks it's his son or he thinks i don't know he gets up to do something maybe maybe it's to find the dog i don't know And then all of a sudden, he gets this, like, drug-induced hallucination and falls over because he's actually drank a paralytic. And he can feel everything and see everything and hear everything, but he can't move. And in said hallucination, a lot of things get thrown at you and a lot of things get explained. And it's this part to me that I found more disturbing than what Asami does to Ayama at the end of the hallucination you find out that what's in the bag is a man or maybe it's i think it's the man from the record company that she used to work for because he was missing for a year and a half and then she killed her boss who they found and and put back together i'm assuming he's the guy from the record company i i think it implied that too he's missing three fingers an ear and his tongue and he's in the bag and he's asking for a meal he's asking for food and asami feeds him vomit that was like the part of that movie where my stomach actually turned and then it's it gets there's this like the 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 third ad it gets really surreal and really it really and jarring really quickly yeah so there's that and then after she feeds like a dog she like gives him a pat on the head like good boy and then oh then like her 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 dance teacher shows up and then she turns back into a nine-year-old girl and then she gets branded again if i remember correctly as an adult oh as an adult that's right yeah it gets really trippy and and then his housekeeper said ayama's housekeeper said something that the owner of the bar either actually said to her or something he's remembering in this imagining that he has of the two of them together which is a man can't function without a woman's help. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. This is him in some weird hallucination putting all the pieces together. It's quite, it really pushes your buttons. And then interspersed with this hallucin, this fever dream, we're interspersed with Asami going full revenge mode and torturing uh, Ayama. The ballet teacher, Ayama. And those are the deaths you see. I think the thing that makes this all the more more terrifying to watch is how sweet she is when she puts so she takes a cord and wraps it around the belly teacher's neck and right before she cuts his head off says 
so sweetly how this wire can cut through flesh and bone and then just does it. She does what she does, especially with Oyama, with such childlike joy. Like she's playing with Barbies or she's playing with her stuffed animals or something like that. She takes such a joy out of it. And she's so, and she sounds so sweet and so soft-spoken and so like almost demure about the whole. I mean, she's demure. She she puts on a very like coy demure act at the beginning. Now it's like childlike wonder and fascination when she's sticking the needles in his face and in his stomach and she's saying deeper, deeper, deeper. Yeah, she's saying kitty, 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 which is all improv. And it's like, oh, it's so creepy. <laughs> it sounds like she's calling a goddamn cat. Like she sounds so sweet. And I'm like, oh, that makes it worse to watch. And oh, and then, Oh, even better. She, you know, like, like straight out of misery, but, you know, taking it further, a couple of steps further, she takes that piano wire and saws up Ayama's foot because she loves him. And then she looks at it and throws it at the window. Just like, you know, when you are playing with your toys and you want to enact a car crash or somebody hit someone or you get you get bored it's like i'm bored this let's let's chop off the other foot exactly or you're bored and you throw it away i think one of the one of the things she says to him that still sticks out with me though you only realize who you are by going through pain and suffering. And her whole thing was that she's like, I wanted to be your only one and I'm not yours, but you're mine because I have no one, but you have a son, you have a dog, you have an ex-wife that you care so much about. So it's like, it's, it's not fair. You should, you should be, you should love and be loyal to me and only me. So I'm going to kill your son. And she tries to. Um, and I want to know what was in that spray bottle. See, I was, I was. Do you think that was like knockout juice? I don't think so. I mean, she was spraying him like several times. Like she got some good hits. I felt like it was like mace or something. She was also um exclaiming, "Oh, you're you're just like all like, the other men. Like you you lied to me. Like the, how they met was essentially on false pretenses." Is and. It just fits a pattern of life where, like, the men in her life just abused her or used her or just lied to her. And then, but at the same time, she has this warped sense of understanding of love where the love is just inherently tied with pain and, and all these ugly things. Put it this way. She got abused by her ballet teacher and probably a lot of men in her life. And then she fell in love with someone at a record company that she worked with who was having an affair with the owner of a bar so she made him go missing and then tracked down the bar owner thinking like oh well she's not having an affair with this guy anymore she's alone got portrayed by her which by the way this is an argument that the director makes for why this movie isn't inherently feminist and why it doesn't work with the avenging angel theme because she doesn't just go after the men that have hurt her she goes after a woman she goes after everyone she sees as a threat or just slighted her and it's still like a like a wee bit feminist though it is i mean it, we can't deny the fact that like she goes after misogynistic ass people and then it, it's also like you know symbolically her act of revenge is like is also like an act of protest against you know patriarchal norms especially in japanese society where it's uh very patriarchal oh yeah like when his son brings his date over which is also that she pops up in the fever dream too is like a, a, like in that list of women that he used which makes me nervous she was like oh we ate your dinner oh my god I'm so sorry like should I get you something I can cook you something and he's like no don't be ridiculous but that is 
her first reaction is, let me fix it. Let me do this for you. And then, and then just to put a pin, or not, oh, that's, not, that's the wrong expression. I'm so tired, Ryan. Just to emphasize that. Well, he walks out and then he gives like the, the okay sign to his son. Like, yeah, she's a great catch. Yeah, it's like, oh, okay. In the end of the movie, uh, Asami gets shoved down the stairs by the sun and breaks her neck. Now, is she is she actually still talking or is that another hallucination from the drugs? Yeah, this is what's confusing me. Like, I don't actually know if the if like the torture actually happened or if no the torture actually happened okay so because his son's calling 911 saying that his father has his left foot cut off and okay. he's still bleeding okay so that actually happened okay i'm so okay so the, how the sequence of events happen on the third act like so they're they're at the hotel he sleeps they, they they sleep together he wakes up all this other neo-noir detective stuff happens and then the torture scene in the house happens and then uh, midway through the torture scene he, he wakes up back in the bed and then she's like oh uh i'm so happy i say yes i i, I accept your proposal and then i was like oh shit what what's i i i don't He's getting second thoughts, and then they fall back asleep, and then it goes back into the torture scene. So I don't actually know if if it all happened in his head at the hotel, or like, I don't know what's... <laughs> Ryan, explain the movie to me. The thing is, she never knew that he was planning on proposing. He only told his son. He didn't even tell his friend. And she, and her first visit to the house is after... She follows him home after his little adventure into Asami's background. So there would be no reason why she would have known that beforehand. Okay, but so that that, that one... Mo so like that scene where Asami like accepts the proposal, it was that... That's not real. Okay. Cool. Okay. Got it. <laughs> That's the drugs. Because he wakes back up and he's on the floor and she's talking to him and his son's on the phone with 911. Or he's about to tell his son to call 911. So when she dies, she lands staring at him. And I honestly could not tell you if her talking was real or not. And in all honesty, it doesn't matter because it just, it adds that extra layer of what the fuckness to that movie. Yeah, I think it's the credits. Like, oh, yeah. Yeah, and then the credits just start and you're like what the shit did i just watch i really never thought that i would be revisiting this movie so thanks a lot for that i'm sorry never, like I mean, it was on the list from the best horror movies to watch in 28 <laughs> it really is it has gained uh, a cult following and cult status since its release i think probably initially it wasn't received too well uh, audition has been on every single horror movie list that i've ever seen of like top 10 a horror or top 10 movie horror movies you have to see before you die audition is always on those lists yeah it, it had a very healthy run on the the indie film award circuit it premiered at the vancouver international film festival uh received a lot more um attention in 2000 uh with the rotterdam international film festival and it won the knf award in the fee presky prize and um and like then i think it was a good segue like it's very influential on horror like we mentioned at the top of the episode but um eli roth and the soska sisters they cite they cite auditions a major influence and you can see a lot of uh, influence especially in terms of like the the archetype of the female lashing out against the patriarchy and just like the men in power who just abuse women 
especially in American Mary, which we did an episode about before. Like those themes are very prominent. So yeah, like, uh, Ryan, I'm really curious to see what are your thoughts because I know like Eli Roth and Sosie Sisters are all like you know some of your two favorite horror creators. As someone who doesn't like torture porn and body horror, yeah, I, I do love and appreciate them. I can see where they would get their influence from a movie like Audition, especially the Soska sisters. I will say though, there is something about Japanese horror that is inherently more horrific than American horror. And I think that a lot of that has to do with a culture difference and the way they portray things that are horrifying to them. And it's also slightly more psychological, I think, than American horror, which makes it hard to, to watch, but it doesn't make it any worse for wear. I think that for something that came out in the last year, the 90s, this movie has aged incredibly well. Absolutely stands the test of time. And it has a de- very deserving cult status. If you have not seen this, you absolutely should, but you have been warned it can be triggering for some people. There are some parts of it that I find very hard to watch. It's not a... It's not a popcorn film. This is something where, like, you don't want to eat anything and you're just sort of going to sit there and, like, go in for the ride. Yeah, it's, like, the most, like, riveting, unsettling episode of Black Mirror ever and you need, like, a tub of ice cream to eat after you watch it just to feel better on the inside yeah i made the mistake of like forgetting the movie i was watching and i watched part of this in the office at the beginning of this movie by the way they were acting i was rooting for asami and i knew what was happening like i was genuinely very excited and then it happened and i was like oh no (laughs) yay piano wire feet It's just so unnerving the way, like, how, like, sickeningly sweet she says. It can cut through flesh and bone. Kitty, 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 kitty. Stop. Stop. I'm going to hear that in my nightmares, Chris. Uh, but yeah, Asami. I blame you. I'm sorry. But, like, Asami, she's played by. You're not, know, sorry. not sorry. <laughs> uh, she's played by Ehi Shina, and she's awesome. By just some background about her. Oh, yeah, she's a model, and she was. I think this is one of the. One of her earliest films, she uh, Sheena first learned about Takashi Miike through Blues Harp. Uh, she expressed interest in meeting director, and then after some conversations about different perspectives and views on love relationships, uh, after uh, during the second meeting, um, Miike asked Sheena to play the part of Asami, and I think it was perfectly casted because she was sweet and creepy as hell. Yeah. So do yourself a favor, grab a friend and watch this movie with them. It's yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, and get a tub of ice cream. Yeah, get a tub of ice cream, get a bottle of alcohol. Well, one last thing. So I don't know what's the current status of this, but uh, back in 2014, Deadline broke news that producer by the name of Mario Kassar wanted to make an English remake adaptation of Audition. This film, according to them, would be a lot closer to to the novel as opposed to Mike's film. And of course, it's gonna, you know, they're gonna transplant the film into North American setting. What are your thoughts on that, Ryan? Okay, well, for those of you who couldn't see me, which is all of you except Chris, I was shaking my head violently at the idea of an American remake. For starters, the cultural differences between, obviously misogyny is multicultural, there's misogyny everywhere. So that trope is universal and I feel like you can do anything with that. I think that there are certain things in Japanese culture that don't necessarily translate well over here. Um, For example, 
one of my favorite movies uh it's korean it's called the tale of two sisters was remade in in 2005 i believe with a movie called the uninvited it was horrible in my opinion. I would love to revisit that in like a future episode for comparative purposes, but I just think that there are certain things that should stay where they are. Yeah, my 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 biggest example or anecdote of this, um, the original old boy film by um, South Korean director Park Chan-wook, and then it was really, uh, it was later uh, remade by Spike Lee in 2013, and it was terrible. So, something. Really? Yeah. Uh, and oh boy, like, oh my god, like, you want to talk about screwed up? Have you seen uh, the original old boy? I haven't. It's on my list on Shudder, I believe. Okay. Oh, jeez. That, this, mo- that movie will screw with your head just as much as Audition will. But I have a feeling that I think I saw a trailer somewhere for Oh Boy. Wasn't that, who was that, Josh Brolin? Yeah, it was Josh Brolin. It was, it's it's one of Spike Lee's worst movies that he directed. But he's okay, he's doing great because he recently won an award for, uh, for Black Klansman, which is a quite a powerful film. I just think there are some things that should be left alone now what year did you say that that article came out 2004 2014 so not that long ago 2014 so it's been five years and we haven't heard anything since it's probably stuck in development hell and i'm okay with that it can stay in development hell for all i care (laughs) two things could happen i could either gain more cult success with an american remake because everyone will flock to the original or it could lose some of it because there's an american remake yeah yeah so So just quick final thoughts on this i think it should stay as is i definitely have a hard time watching this movie i feel like this movie could be a lot easier to stomach with a friend grab a friend if you want to have a disturbing night in grab grab your emotional support buddy yeah 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 my emotional support buddy is a bottle of wine don't go anywhere near a remake please because i really don't i really don't want this to get touched although it's like i said it's been five years so i don't i don't know sometimes in hollywood takes forever you know try to get something moving forward so yeah, I think I think I think we'll be fine. I think we'll be fine. Do you want to give a rating? I have to knock a point off for misogyny, but I will give it a four point nine. <laughs> it's still a really good movie. There you go. Uh, I'm a I'm gonna give it like a four point nine out of five needles, uh, acupuncture needles, because like the the one point maybe. maybe Okay, maybe th- this is because it's my first time watching it. The third act was like really confusing and 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 to me, so I I, f- I found it kind of hard to follow exactly what was happening, and there was like so many weird what the fuck moments going on. I mean, that, that didn't take away in my enjoyment, but like I don't know, I feel like it could could have been cleaned a bit, but maybe that's just me being stupid. So. I don't know. No, I think that that is your perspective and opinion as a viewer, which is valid. But yeah, I still recommend this film. Um, but as Ryan said, please find a support buddy, a tub of ice cream, your your favorite plush animal toy, just (laughs) (laughs) anything. (laughs) So with that, thank you guys for listening to another episode of Left for Dread. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Literally everything helps. You can listen to us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and now Spotify every Friday. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Left for Dread Pod on facebook and on our new website leftfordread.com hell yeah and this is our first foreign horror film and we have yet to get into argento 
and giallo and all of that good shit. So this is definitely not our first foreign horror film. And it certainly, I mean, it certainly won't be our last. Like, there's a lot of other types of horror, like J-horror, K-horror, um, you know, Italian horror, so... Add us with your favorites. Yeah, exactly. Or shoot us a, a, an email and pitch us some requests so we can add it to the queue. Um, until then... Um... You know, enjoy the flick if you dare, and <laughs> stay <laughs> dreadful!
Yeah. <laughs>